From the 1999 album The Luxury of Time, David Mead and World of a King here on Cosmosis. Well, the first hour of today's show will feature my interview with David Mead. He has a new album out called Almost and Always. It's available at www.noisetrade.com forward slash David Mead. I asked David about his background. Um, I grew up mostly in the South, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Birmingham, Alabama, um, but I was born in New York, and uh, my mom is from Georgia, and she's actually a uh, an excellent singer. She kind of came up in the more like the gospel and country traditions. But um, you know, I just I, music just came very naturally to me. I think just because it was really natural for her, and she sang a lot when I was. Uh, in the womb and sing a lot when I was a kid. So, you know, it, it just never really seemed like something that was like uh, a skill you had to learn. It was just sort of there. And um, so I think that's kind of where I got got whatever I have. And um, and then, you know, my, my parents were just really supportive of it. They never, they never, uh, they never deemed it as like a, a bad or, or strange thing to uh, spend your life pursuing so uh, who who did you who did you like from an early age music wise musician wise i mean singer songwriters bands uh probably it was kind of both i mean you know i i when i was really little it was it was mostly like gospel music and country music the stuff that my mom listened to but um i think when i started developing my own taste so to speak i i was mostly into uh i mean i remember simon and garfunkel was like a big jumping off point for me and um my parents listened to Harry Nilsson and Joni Mitchell and uh I can remember those records and then I guess when I got to the point when I wanted to kind of rebel and do my own thing I pro I gravitated more towards what were at the time alternative bands like REM and U two and the police and uh uh the Smiths and that kind of stuff. So what I do now is probably I don't know, I feel like the the older I get and the more records I continue to make, I, I kind of do stuff that's probably more purely in that singer-songwriter pop tradition from the 60s and 70s. But I think when I started making records, I was trying to probably blend all of those influences at once. When did you start writing songs? Uh, let's see, probably 1986, so a little over 20 years ago. What kind of, what kind of stuff did you write at the beginning? Uh, very soupy, melodramatic, like poor man's James Taylor kind of stuff. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I think some kids kind of go out of their way to, um, you know, they they try to go get exceptionally tough or like street at a stupidly early age to kind of validate themselves, you know, like like kids that go around and quote Eminem songs or Jay Z songs and. Uh, my my big move was to get incredibly emotional and sentimental and melancholic. That was my big uh, you know step out. <laughs> nice, very nice. <laughs> First time I saw you, um, you were with Joe Mark's brother in Nashville, right? And you did a Twelfth and Porter gig, and uh, was with was with some strings, and I thought that was really pretty cool. And then next thing I know, you were doing your own thing, and uh, before you know it, uh, the first album was at Luxury of Time came out. So why don't you talk a little bit about that solo journey from Luxury of Time on. I mean, um, you'd been in bands before that, obviously, and then you go out to do your own thing. Was that a little frightening for you? Um, yeah, I guess it was frightening. I, I, you know, it, it seemed pretty natural. I think, I think if anything, I had sort of learned in Joe Mark's brother that I might not have been, at least at that point in my life, very cut out to be in a band. You know, I wasn't like a very 
good band member. I've not, um, I don't know, I, I probably hadn't learned how to participate in the democratic process or to take <laughs> leadership very well <laughs> at that <laughs> yeah. point. So it felt natural, but, you know, I guess it was a little frightening at the same time, sure. How, how was that? How was the recording process for Luxury of Time? Was it a, a, a pace that you were comfortable with uh, since it was on a major label? Was it, uh, was it an interesting experience for you? Well, let's see. You know, looking back on it, and now, I mean, it's, it's almost 10 years ago that I did it, and it's, it's, now I realize that I, you know, compared to almost everybody else I knew or knew of on a major label who was doing, like, a first record with, you know, the kind of ridiculous budgets that were being spent back in the late 90s in the record industry, I, I was actually really, uh, for the most part, left alone to kind of do it mostly the way that I wanted to do it. I, I can't believe that they gave me as much freedom as they did. I mean, that said, there was still, um, you know, I think, and I knew this at the time at least, so it wasn't a surprise, but it's like, you know, if you sign to a major record label, you kind of have to go in with the understanding that major record labels know how to sell records one of, a couple of ways, and the biggest one is to, you know, get something on the radio and, and keep pushing it, go after it that way. So I was never really under any uh, delusion that I it wasn't, I didn't have some kind of responsibility to give them, you know, music that they could work. Otherwise, it would have been a stupid business agreement for me to get into, I think. So, uh, I mean, I guess there was, you could call it pressure, but I guess I just felt like it was more of a sensible obligation, and I thought my music was pretty pop anyway so i didn't really think it was that big a deal and they didn't either they really never beat me up for a you know they really they didn't make me go back into the studio 15 times to try to get a single you know right and with a major label like that how much feedback do you get i mean do they do they give you feedback along do you have to submit stuff along the way and show the progress you're making or at the end you just turn it in and and they tell you what they think or how does that work well i think every situation is different um but in mine it was you know i think uh there's a guy at the, the you know, major label A&R guy, technically, his, his, the, that stands for Artist and Repertoire, or used to, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they're, they're, they're basically supposed to be the liaison between the label and the artist, and they're also responsible, technically, for making sure that the artist has material that's quality enough to record. I, again, I think that's a really dated definition of what that job is. It's probably totally different now. But, um, you know, so I, you know, it seemed like basically I would do demos of songs when I thought I had enough songs for a record, or the right songs for a record, and to them with the A and R guy and the management, and sort of put our heads together, decide what was the best way to go. But I still feel like it was, I was usually given the freedom to have my idea or, or ideas be front and center, and they were there to comment on it. I never felt like anybody was trying to run the show or tell me what to do, which, again, looking back at it, I feel really thankful for that. I think that was kind of an extraordinary situation um, compared to what I later understood a lot of other people to have to go through. Yeah, it sounds like it was a good situation and uh, something that uh, artists would actually really want. I think a lot of people, I'm, I'm assuming, that get signed to labels, uh, it's a rude awakening because it's the exact opposite for them, you know, and for you, it sounds like it was a pretty good experience. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had a lot of good guy. You know, I had a, a, a really good manager at that time, and he, I think he did a very good job of uh, kind of preparing me for what the what the game was, so to speak. You know. Sure. Yeah. Here's another track from David Mead's album, "The Luxury of Time." It's called Robert Bradley's Postcard.
Luxury of Time, Robert Bradley's postcard, David Mead here on Cosmosis. David recorded a second record for RCA called Mine and Yours, and that's where we continue the interview. And Mine and Yours came out then a couple years later on RCA again? Yes. And same type of deal? They give you pretty much the freedom to do what you wanted for that record as well? Uh, they did. They, they kind of cut the budget on that one because the first one had not been nearly as successful as they were hoping it would be, and they also they put a little, they, they really wanted the single for that one. Uh, more than I got more pressure than I did on the second one, but I but you know I kind of like that pressure honestly, and I, when I got that pressure, um, I wrote the song uh, "Girl on the Roof" and then um, one called "Standing Here in Front of Me," which I thought were pro- pro- probably still are two of the best sort of like radio single songs I've ever done. So I actually responded well to that. I mean, I've always been uh, up for a challenge or, or a kick in the pants whichever you describe it as. So, um, But, yeah, we did that record a lot more quickly. Uh, I mean, it still had, like, a, I mean, compared to what I do records for now, it was a pretty healthy budget. But um, the whole process was a little more streamlined. But I wanted the record to sound more streamlined, you know. I mean, Luxury of Time had definitely had, like, everything but the kitchen sink on it. And uh, I kind of wanted to make a more tight, you know, 
pop combo sounding record on mine and yours. So that's what it was. What was what was RCA's marketing plan for you? Um, did they fill you in on that? <laughs> um, you know, they kind of did. It's I, I think looking back in some respects, I was sort of a, a slightly ahead of the curve for. A lot, it probably would have lot, been a lot easier for an RCA to market me like in 2005 or 2006 than it was in 1999 and 2000 just because it seemed like another sort of wave of uh, singer-songwriters. Like I remember David Gray was kind of breaking around the time I was uh, touring Luxury of Time, and he seemed like he kind of opened the floodgates for a little while for more people to kind of go after him. So... Um, but I'm not really answering your question. What their marketing plan was? Uh, I mean, they just—you know—to their credit, and and maybe not to their credit, they just really believed in the music. I mean, I think they just kind of went after sort of trying to convince people that I was one of those um, songwriters and singers that was special and was going to hang around. And um, you know, I don't know. It seemed like a pretty honest effort. I never felt like they were going for a cheap or obvious gimmick in trying to, you know convince people or, or demonstrate that I was worthy of their attention. It just kind of seemed like they were saying, this is good music and you should play it on the radio and, and you should buy the record, and that was that. Right. I will say, you know, in my years, they really kept their cards a lot closer to their chest in terms of how long and how voraciously they marketed it. I mean, really, honestly, that record probably had about a month of serious promotion behind it, and then when the first single didn't really start taking it radio they kind of backed off of it but they did support it in the uk and um uh girl on the roof they actually ended up doing really well there so it kind of had an extended shelf life over there and here's that track that david mentioned girl on the roof from the album mine and yours
That was David Mead with Girl on the Roof from the album Mine and Yours. David's association with RCA ended after Mine and Yours. After that, Indiana on Network, is that correct? How did that come about? Well, uh, you know, I guess technically after that, I started doing a third record that was called Wherever You Are that RCA actually paid for, but ended up not ever releasing. And then I ended up releasing part of it as an EP after Indiana. So I did that, and then RCA restructured their company, and I got dropped. So uh, Indiana was like a very different approach, because at that point I had been... uh, touring i guess for a couple three years and doing most of my touring acoustic or like solo or either duo and just kind of seeing like you know even though i'd made these records that were sort of pop rock based arrangements um you know people were kind of people were responding to the quieter more intimate presentation of those songs so i thought you know i'm gonna have to do a record here and pay for it out of my own pocket um, so I don't really have the money to do a big record like those other two anyway, so why don't I do a more quiet acoustic record, you know? And um, it kind of coincided well with, like, some personal events in my life that lent themselves to being expressed that way. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what that record was, really. I mean, it started out as an EP, and then, you know, uh, it was sounding good, so we went ahead and did a whole record that way. And then... Uh, I think my manager was sort of simultaneously pitching the RCA record, which was another larger production kind of record, and then Indiana, and um, was sort of like almost saying, you know, we, we like them both. Which one do you prefer, the record companies? And Network decided that they were really into Indiana. So, um, you know, I liked Network at the time a lot, and that seemed like a, a good thing to go with, so I went with it. Okay, and wherever you are now, that's that's when I talked to you back in yeah, it would have been two thousand five, I think. Remember when you came down to the studio? Yeah, sure. And uh, that you were you were doing that record uh, was just coming out at that point. Got great reviews. It's kind of funny looking back. I I, I felt like I had kind of. I mean, I remember that came out about the time that I was recording this record, Tangerine, um, which was the record that came out after that. So. You know, it was sort of old to me at that time. It was kind of, a, and it felt a lot different than than what I was doing with Tangerine. So, um, you know, it was. I guess because it was an EP. I mean, I mean, I remember at the time it was like hard to get press for it. It was. I didn't really feel like it. It got a whole lot of notice, you know, and it came out on a on a really small indie label. So it was in a way. It felt more like kind of a. I was. I was. Uh, putting something out that I wanted my fans to hear, but it didn't feel bad, like completely in sync with where I actually was with my music. So um, I don't know. I, I should probably go back and listen to that record more. It's kind of, it's always sort of had a slightly dark cloud over it for me because of the circumstances under which it was recorded and written. And, um, and then the fact that, you know, it was the, uh, you know, it's the record that I turned in and ended up getting dropped on. So, mm-hmm. um, anyway, I mean, I'm really glad it came out, and I'm certainly glad that, that people liked it. But uh, I didn't. I never really quite had the same connection to it that I've had to my other records because just because it was like recorded and then shelved and then came out. I don't know, like two years after it was recorded. So it was kind of an odd process, you know. Here's the track called "Make It Right" from the EP "Wherever You Are." Try to ride it 
That was David Mead and Make It Right. David is the subject of our interview here today on Cosmosis. David talked about his next album called Tangerine. Tangerine was kind of like um, I had uh, talked with Network, the label I was on, uh, about what kind of record I wanted to do. And I said I really wanted to do, I kind of want to do the, the sort of ultimate pop record that, that I've been trying to do all this time in some respects and you know we booked the studio time and everything and i literally got a call i want to say it was like maybe two weeks before i was supposed to start recording that and uh network had decided to not pick up my options so they did and then they decided they reneged on that or something i can't remember the circumstances exactly so uh you know i had to it ended up being a really good thing because i didn't you know that was the first actually it was the second record i had done where there was no uh, label involved, and I, I think in retrospect, I've definitely enjoyed recording that way a lot more. Um, but with when I finished Tangerine, it was like, you know, it really felt like sort of the 
realization of a lot of things that I'd wanted to do for a long time. You know, it was, it was like a record in the mold of all my favorite pop records, like Skylarking by XTC and Spike by Elvis Costello and uh, Sgt. Pepper's and Revolvers and um, Pet Sounds. You know, it was like this really kind of quirky record that covered a lot of ground but felt like a really solid whole. And so I was really proud of it. But um, it definitely was a harder sell, I think, to people who were... I mean, because by this point, you know, the record industry, as we know it, had really started, or as we used to know it, had really started to uh, tighten the reins, and it was, like, getting more formulaic than ever, and Tangerine was definitely not a record that fit into uh, what was working very well. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say, like, which is a favorite record that I've ever done, but... That was probably definitely, at the time, my favorite up to that point. And which brings us up to Almost and Always. And let's talk a little about that, uh, the background of that record. Did you record all that in one, one place? Yeah, we recorded it actually in uh, seven days at Alex the Great Studios in Nashville. And Brad Jones produced it, the same guy that produced Tangerine. And uh, it, was, it was fun because, you know, basically we went into the studio. I had, like... 3500 bucks to work with and it was like you know let's just make it happen so um it's probably the most different from the other records in that i actually co-wrote for the first time uh i think nine of the 13 songs that are on it with a guy named bill domain who's in a band in nashville called swan dive mm -hmm. and um it uh i mean i don't know the idea it's like the the, the songwriting and the arrangements and stuff um to me, it's sort of as maybe, I don't know, sometimes they're more traditional, sometimes they're less traditional than anything else I've, I've done before, I think. But um, I was really inspired by this record called uh, Nielsen Sings Newman, which is a recording of Harry Nielsen singing all Randy Newman songs. I think it's from 69. And that record is basically just piano and vocals. And um, I just hadn't heard a record for a long time that was recorded that way that that got me as much as um, it did. So it just really showed me that you know if you have songs that you believe in and you're you're kind of feeling as much as I was those songs at that time, you can really do a lot with some sparse arrangements. So um, you know we just really we we when we did pre-production for it, we we would start with. I mean, I had an idea I wanted it to be pretty stripped down, but it got even more stripped down as the process went on. You know, it was really just like a complete minimalist concept. It's just like how much can we get away with sort of implying and not doing. That was sort of the uh, overriding thought behind it, I think. Mm -hmm. What's the songwriting process like for you? Is it? I'm sure it's different for every song. Uh, or, or is there a certain routine? Do you generally try to get the you know melody first, or lyrics first, or, or chord structure first? Uh, is there any general way that you do it, or does it really vary song by song? Um, it does vary a little bit song by song, but I would say for the most part, I might, might if I have a gift, it's it's definitely uh, like chords and melody. You know, I, I that's that's I don't. I very rarely get like a concept for a song, what a song should be about, or or something I th I think would be an interesting concept to write a song about. You know, I guess the the music part of it, the the melody and the chords and the structure of it, uh, that's that's what always contains the most emotion to me. You know, like a, a great novelist can create all of that sort of emotional subtext just with words 
alone, or a great poet can do that. But I, I guess, you know, what I do as a songwriter, I heavily rely on the music to do that. And the words are really just kind of a structure for that emotion to hang on, for lack of a better I don't really thought that through, but um, so the music always comes first. Uh, the the cool thing about co-writing with Bill is that I think he's he works in almost the exact opposite way. Like he's the kind of guy that will really sit down and actually type out an entire page of lyrics. It's like a really uh, interesting perspective on on usually kind of a time-worn theme like a relationship or whatever. But it's it's just he just has a great gift for. Uh, kind of picking out different um, points of view, I guess, and, and, and then illustrating them in a really lyrical, simple, almost kind of like Japanese kind of minimalist way. And I, that, to me, it just goes great with what I'm usually thinking about musically. So um, that turned out to be a pretty fruitful collaboration. So before Almost and Always, the, the solo records that you did, you basically, was that pretty much solo written then by you, all those records? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, all of them were. Okay, so this was this was your first co-writing experience then, since probably the band you were in, correct, Joe Mark's brother? Well, I had I had co-written songs, but I had never right. really. Um, I guess I never really co-written songs with the thought that they would end up on my record. And in honest, in all honesty, I, you know, the majority of these songs, I didn't really, they didn't really have a home. You know, we were just. I think Bill and I initially got together because we were going to try to write like a country Nashville song that we could cash in and get a little bit of insurance money in the bank and and you know it took us about 20 minutes to realize that we were just so terrible at doing that um that we should just write what we enjoyed writing so we uh we just started doing that and so we we ended up having this collection of like i don't know 25 songs that we really liked but we didn't know and you know actually we were always hoping that we would find some sort of young bet midler kind of person or bet midler herself um (laughs) to cut them because they just seemed like they would be great in that context. Okay. How many players did you have on the record? Did you have quite a few or was it a, a, a largely a one-man show or two-man show? Uh, we did pretty much everything live. Uh, with uh, I played guitar and ukulele and sang and Bill played guitar and a guy named Tyson Rogers played uh, pianos and keyboards. And the only overdubs is we got a guy named Chris Carmichael to come in and do strings and um, a guy named Jim Hope to come in and do uh, woodwinds and probably one or two other things that I can't think of off the top of my head. But that was pretty much it. Oh, and, and Brad uh, Jones played upright bass and a little mm-hmm. bit of mandolin. So, yeah, it was a pretty tight operation. Wow. And it had to be because we literally had seven days to start and finish it, record and mix. So. Arrangement-wise, how did you approach it? Because that's one thing you mentioned earlier, the, the arrangements, and that's one thing I noticed right off the bat. The arrangements, there's such a wide array of sounds on there. How did you approach that? Was that stuff pretty much uh, in your mind when you went in the studio, or did Bill have something to do with that, Bill and Brad, or how, how did that all play out? Um, you know, you're the second person who said that to me in terms of, like, you know, it sounds like there's such a wide array of sounds, and I, 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 I don't really remember them doing like so many different instruments but I think honestly maybe what the difference is is that there's just more space around what's there so you know like like on Tangerine my last record there's you know there's all kinds of shit on it and but the reality of it is is that most people probably only pick up on about half of what's there because there's so much of it but 
you know, there's all this, like, amazing, like, tripling of, of certain lines with three different instruments and stuff, and, and it's a great sound, but you don't really know what it is. But there are so many moments on Almost and Always where, you know, it'll just be like a single note, a, a three-note line plucked on a 12-string guitar, and it just really kind of radiates because there's just so little around it. So... In reality, I, I don't, there's not like a ton of different instruments on it, but I think, I'd like to think anyway, maybe the choices are just a little more, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe we made better choices in terms of where to place things. Let's go over the songs real quick. Uh, Last Train Home, uh, you want to talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, sure. That's, um, that's one of my favorites. That seems to be the one that is kind of getting the most attention at the moment, too. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's basically the song we started out writing, and Bill had the title and a verse that basically had that first verse done, and so we we continued, we got the music going, and and then continued going through it. And I just assumed he was talking about like two two young lovers who had just had a big day in the city, um, you know, coming home, and then which was you know kind of impetus enough for me to keep writing the song. And then he said, you know, this is this is actually about the last time I went to visit my mom. Um, she, uh, they had gone to the city and were literally on the last train back to New Jersey and she had fallen asleep against the window. He said there was just something about the lighting in the train where he just kind of looked over and realized in a very deep way, like, you know, at some point she was going to be gone and he'd never had that realization before in that way and you know as soon as he said that i just got chills and was like wow you know that's that's sorry i didn't mean to uh bring it down with this young lover scenario let's write that that's so much better and uh so that's kind of what it is i mean it's it's just sort of that uh i don't know i it's the idea about the uh the cycle of uh life and death in a way you know that i guess the, the train is the metaphor for that and then the the you know together alone idea of that so um i was really happy with the way that came out the carwells and the oranges footprints on this morning's day Words on the Naugahyde with you We spent the day remembering the city Mixing up our streets and avenues And now you're fast asleep and I am so alone And we're together on the last train All the towns are beating stops to go Sleeping, I am so alone. We're together. 
roads are beating, two more stops to go. Next one, Little Boats. Um, want to tell us about that one a little bit? Uh, yeah, that was that was that's like one of my dream songs to write because I think Bill pretty much had like ninety five percent of that lyric written, and I pretty much just sat down and did the music, and I don't know what what I kind of remember to be about half an hour or something. You know, it just was so. That's one of those lyrics that he's written to me that just um, there's just something so simple and almost like haiku about it you know and um i just i, I like the idea of, of memories is like you know just these little vessels that kind of carry you back so quickly and i think that's the way that i think about music in and of itself you know music to me is um a lot more powerful than like smells or tastes or, or other things that are supposed to jar your memory and that it just um you know, it, it's like you can hear three notes from a song that you heard when you were a kid, and you're like right back in the car with your mom. And um, so that that one was really easy and very painless to write. But um, you know, every once in a while you get one that's like that, and that usually means it's it's got something special about it because you just sort of showed up and it happened. You know. Crystal moon, the autumn leaves, distant call, a sun breeze, little boats that carry me to you. Four o'clock on Saturdays, so forbear the hideaways, little boats that carry me.
burning down Nothing can deny me Catch the ripples and the tides Hold my breath and close my eyes Still my heart knows where I'm bound This compass is inside me Spanish bells raise high the roof Oceans made of morning dew Little boats that carry me to you Find my way Through the dark The wind and rain Under bridges Burning down Nothing can deny me Catch the ripples And the tides Hold my breath And close my eyes Still my heart Knows where I'm bound This compass is inside me Crystal moon The autumn leaves, distant call, a sudden breeze, little boats that carry me to you. Next one is one that sounded a little bit different than the other ones, Mojave Phone Booth. Yeah, um, the, the lyric on that is really interesting. There's actually a, sort of a legend of this phone booth that was in the Mojave Desert. I, I don't know exactly when they took it out, but it was there for a long time. And it was just this literally like kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, this kind of before the age of the, the Internet or any sort of advanced telecommunications, cell phones, obviously, and people started hearing about this phone, and, and the number kind of got circulated around the world. Uh, so it kind of it started up this weird thing of, like, people would actually make pilgrimages out to this phone booth and sit there and wait for it to ring, and then pick it up and have these completely random conversations with someone from wherever who had gotten the number and dialed it. Um, so it just, you know, I just love that image. Uh, and, you know, the chorus basically, no, you're not alone. It's just that, like, you know, if it, you're sitting in the middle of a desert by a phone booth waiting for it to ring, it's just kind of like, what what better what better sense of satisfaction in a way of, of kind of knowing that, you know, that there's, there's some sort of interconnectedness in humanity that kind of gives you a reason to live, I guess. That, that's what that song was about for me by the time we finished it. Way out in the desert stands a heart that barely phone booth hasn't rung all week She's dialing the number like a solitary prayer Listens to the space between the rocks and air 
Are you going to be doing some shows in the near future for the record? Yeah, I have, uh, I think, about 14 shows lined up for February and uh, building up my little uh, 10, 15 city loop Mm -hmm. east of the Mississippi. And um, so that's probably what I'm going to keep doing for a little while. Probably, you know, get out to different places here and there uh, occasionally. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of planning to tour in February, May, and. September this year, so I'll definitely be out supporting it. So are you, are you going to be playing anywhere in, on near Nashville where people can come out and see you? Yeah, I have a uh, Valentine's show, which I'm hoping is going to be uh, really special, actually, because uh, Swan Dive, Bill's band, is going to be on the bill with mm-hmm. me. So, yeah, we're, we're uh, trying to offer sort of a uh, romantic musical outing for anyone who's interested. Okay, where's that going to be on Valentine's Day? That's going to be at the basement. Okay. Is there going to be a physical copy of this record available? Yes. They are off to the presses as we speak, actually. And um, they'll, before 
probably I'm just I think I'm probably just going to kind of do a consignment things with the different indie stores that uh, have had the most success with my records over the years. You know, it's kind of a the digital thing. I mean, as much as I would love to be able to give everybody a nice fat piece of vinyl to look at, it's it's it does sort of take the since I'm not really operating with a huge budget at this point, it's like it's a nice way to get the music out there. And then if you you know if you want to have something to hold in your hands, it's readily available through the mail or hopefully in your uh, favorite local music retailer. And you mentioned online. Where can people get it online? Uh, it's easy actually. This noise trade thing. Basically, what they do is they build a widget for you. So. You, it's kind of like a little online download store that can be embedded anywhere people want to have it. So it's on my MySpace page, which is just myspace.com uh, slash David Mead, or, um, you know, you can go to noisetrade.com slash David Mead. It's there. And, uh, you know, the cool thing about it is that if you want to download it for free you can uh, in exchange for uh sending out a note about it to five friends or you can pay what you want for it so it's uh it's easy to get it's free if you want it and um you know uh, i'm just trying to get it to as many people as possible this time around Junk up 
All of these rusting souvenirs I know you've always had a good heart Close to your heart 
There was so much I didn't know And what I knew I didn't understand Look at me, look at me Where have I gone? Where have I gone? It's a bittersweet way To my debut as a man I defied the Lord and Ford In that eucalyptus stand I wasn't even sure I loved her We were friends in the high school band And look at me, look at me Where have I gone? Where have I gone? Look at me in the mirror Of the way I look at you In the mirror of my words You'll find my fantasies are true Remnants of a childhood dream A nightmare or two And it all came crashing in on me, my God, my land, my law And now I wonder as I look around if I'll make it through at all Look at me, look at me, where have I gone, where have I gone And now I lie awake and sometimes I find I'm lost I rummage through my what's and it's my profits and my costs. It's not the bridges burn that bother me, but the ones that I never cross. Look at me, look at me, where have I gone? Where have I gone? Look at me in the mirror of the way I look at you. Oh, in the mirror of my words, my fantasies are true. 
track from the association look at me look at you here on cosmosis before that aha the sun always shines on tv and steve Earl kicking off hour number two of cosmosis the revolution starts now this is cosmosis heard every friday three to five central time on the air at 98.9 in the nashville area on the net at radiofreenashville.org and in the audio archive section of radiocosmosis.com hope you enjoyed that first hour interview with david mead good stuff there if you are interested in picking up his latest record you can check it out at www.noisetrade.com forward slash David Mead. Head on over there. Let's keep the music rolling right now. It's one of the finest singers in Southern Soul music history, Percy Sledge, out of left field here on Cosmosis on 98.9 WRFN Radio Free Nashville. When least expected
में एस आई एस टी एस एम में एस आई एस
The class of 1982 might remember that one being all over the radio that year. Marshall Crenshaw, Someday, Someway. Before that, the B-side of that single, You're My Favorite Waste of Time. A couple of great tracks from 1982. And, of course, Percy Sledge, Out of Left Field, here on Cosmosis on Radio Free Nashville. Heard every Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Central Time on the air at 98.9. Radio Free Nashville in the Nashville area. And also heard on the net at RadioFreeNashville.org. And you can check out the show anytime in the audio archive section of RadioCosmosis.com. And Radio Free Nashville is growing and now reaches most of Middle Tennessee, but we could still use some help. There are several ways you can help us out. You can earmark funds for expansion, adopt a bill, or give a monthly subscription. You can make a workplace donation designated to Radio Free Nashville through community shares, purchase merchandise at our online store, or become an underwriter. Contact Ginny at RadioFreeNashville.org to find out how, or check out the website, www.RadioFreeNashville.org. Right now, this is a song when I was working at a production music library in Nashville. Came across my desk one day, and I have no idea who it is. I liked some of the songs on there. It was a six-song demo, a couple pop tunes on there. This is one of them. The name Zoran Todorovic is what's on there, but I don't know who it is. It's called I Belong to You on Cosmosis Radio Free Nashville.
You know if silence was golden You couldn't raise a dime Because your mind's on vacation And your mouth is working overtime You quoting figures and dropping names You telling stories and playing games You over laughing when things ain't funny You trying to sound like you don't need If talk was criminal, you'd be alive with crime Because your mind's on vacation and your mouth is working overtime
down on Main Street across from Mr. Blues. My faded leather jacket, my weathered brogan shoes. A chill north wind was blowing, but the spring was coming on. As I wanted to myself, just how long I had been gone. So I strolled across old Main Street, walked down a flight of stairs. Stepped into the hall and saw all my friends were there. A neon sign was flashing, welcome, come on in. It feels so good, feeling good again. My favorite band was playing an Otis Redding song. When they sang the chorus, everybody sang along. Dan and Margarita were swaying side by side. I heard they were divorcing, but I guess they let it slide. And I wished I had some money with which to buy around. I wished to cash my paycheck before I came to town. But I reached into my pocket, found three twenties and a ten. It feels so good, feeling good again. You are the only one who knows this alibi. 
Elvis Costello and his longtime musical partner Steve Naive, Alibi, live before that Robert Earl Keane from the album Walking Distance, Feeling Good Again. The Dovells, You Can't Sit Down, Mose Allison, Your Mind is on Vacation, and Zoran Todorovic, I Belong to You. This is Cosmosis on Radio Free Nashville, 98.9 on the dial, or on the internet at RadioFreeNashville.org in the audio archive section of RadioCosmosis.com. Right now, it's Queen calling all girls from the album Hot Space on Cosmosis, Radio Free Nashville.
Personally, before that, Nirvana, Penny Royalty from the album In Utero, The Rationals Hold On, and Queen Calling All Girls. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of Cosmosis on this Friday. Thank you so much for listening. And, hey, if you get a chance, check out the website, RadioFreeNashville.org. Lots of great stuff on the site. And peruse the program schedule. We have a lot of great programs here on Radio Free Nashville, a wide array of, of different kinds of programs. And I tell you what, some of my favorites, there's Never Too Old on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock with Wendy V. She's always got a great theme lined up for you, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock.
8 o'clock. You know what else I like? That politics of dogs show that's on 9 o'clock on Tuesday mornings. Uh, she doesn't just talk about pets. She talks about politics, too. It's always entertaining. Check that out. And, of course, there is the show right after this one called Pop Top. Dave Wheel always has an excellent show lined up, a wide variety of music, always entertaining. So do not turn the radio off. Leave that Internet rolling. Pop Top next here on Radio Free Nashville. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I think I let you down Let you down I leave you